Part 11 of The Blue Review, Volume 1, Issue Number 2, edited by John Middleton Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Novels by Hugh Walpole Imagination The use of the imagination has been complicated for the modern novelist by the emphasis laid by the modern critic upon the importance of recorded observation. It was at one time demanded that Mr. Micawber and Becky Sharp should not only have sharply defined dwellings and properties of a very recognisable kind, but that they should also, of themselves, be individual and memorable characters. Now that background is of itself almost sufficient to claim approving attention, and the facts that one can remember the angles of the playground at one's board school, and the exact appearance of the counter at the shop, where one was once an eager assistant, is enough to catch the critics and readers by the throat. Mr. Wells and Mr. Arnold Bennett, who have in their sharp retention of experience enough material to last them until the end of their days, have nevertheless produced some of their most remarkable work by the fine energy of their imagination. The deserted London in the War of the Worlds, and the execution in the Old Wives' Tale, are as powerful and as true as the experiences of Kipps or the aspirations of young Clayhanger. The lesser novelist of today, however, betrays at every step that his imagination is consciously fettered by the close proximity of his public. Unless he is of the first rank, and artist enough to give this same imagination precedence to this cherished public, one success will kill his spontaneity, strangle his honesty, weaken his individuality. Here, in W. J. Locke's Stella Maris, John Lane's Six Shillings, is pertinent and distressing evidence of this. There are many who admired the books that Mr. Locke gave to the world before Marcus Ordain, as work of the very finest promise, and of considerable performance. The Usurper, Where Love Is, The White Dove, these were individual, honest, admirable studies in character. Yvonne in the Derelicts, and the Lanyons in the White Dove, are etchings of the most brilliant order. With Marcus Ordain came popular success, and since then, so anxious has been Mr. Locke to give his public what they wish him to give them, that spontaneity of imagination has been utterly and recklessly abandoned. In Stella Maris, the latest and surely the worst of his novels, we can behold this shackled imagination struggling at first, ultimately defeated, imprisoned, abandoned. The idea of someone living away from the world, innocent, happy, ignorant, plunged then suddenly into experience and beaten to the ground with the shock of it, is, if not absolutely new, packed with possibilities. I believe that, at the beginning, Mr. Locke saw these possibilities, but saw also that an honest development of them would have forbidden both that sentimentality and that crudity that his public now expect from him. His imagination protests. Come, says Mr. Locke, you've got to do what I tell you. No more nonsense. We have, then, a beautiful girl, with a pair of frail arms, a daintily curved neck, a haunting face, and a mass of dark hair encircling it on the pillow like a nimbus. We have a strong, rugged hero, a wonderful villainess, 
thin-lipped and always dressed in black a charity child surely related to little nell and little paul the psychological interest of the effect upon stella of the revelation of a wicked here a purple world is sunk beneath such sentences as the cruel vulgar and hideous things of life were not the appanages of a class apart they entered into her own narrowed world her beautiful world her hateful horrible terror of a world or stella rose and clasping hands to her bosom went to him belovedest for christ's sake what is the end of all this the end of it all is of course he put his arm around her and all his love spoke you the living mystery of beauty that is you he whispered into her lips you stella maris star of the sea there is no humour in this book if mr locke has chained his imagination for fear of the things that it might do miss mayer in the third miss simons sidgwick three shillings and sixpence net has discarded it altogether here i must frankly admit that mr macefield's eulogistic preface aroused too eager an excitement in this preface he says the world is of course the comparatively passive feminine world but few modern books if any have treated of that world so happily with such complete acceptance unbiased and unprejudiced yet with such selective tact and variety of gaiety remembering the work of mrs wharton anne douglas sedgwick miss sinclair miss chumley miss ethel sidgwick and others all of whom have had for their stage this comparatively passive feminine world i was naturally determined to judge the third miss simons by high standards to these standards miss mayer's little book does not begin to attain here is an accurate well-written grey narration of a melancholy spinster's passage through the world the observation is accurate the atmosphere of heavy chandeliers midday sunday beef and grey gloves worn at the fingertips most carefully maintained here is this material waiting for imagination to come and start it into flame imagination never comes the facts are there the observation is accurate and from it all nothing is to be gathered nothing carries in its spontaneous vitality any relation to the other victories the other tragedies that life can show no observation is not enough here indeed in another first novel published in the same month is mr macefield's too eager statement immediately contradicted miss ivy low in growing pains heinemann's six shillings has for her study this same passive feminine world and in it she does not entirely disregard the claims of imagination does produce something that has life and colour somewhere at its heart it is in the earlier portion of her book that miss lowe is most successful her nervous self-centred morbid little girl flying from temper to affection from bull's-eyes stolen out of a shop to religion is most admirably described and miss lowe does use her imagination sufficiently to place this little girl in relation with all the other things in a restless and agitated world in the book there is poetry too and a very admirable humour miss lowe has not as yet learnt the lessons of construction and development 
but hers is the best first novel that the present year has yet produced imagination if it has not accompanied miss Lowe quite far enough has yielded to miss ethel sidgwick almost too bountifully in succession sidgwick and jackson six shillings we are given the long-expected sequel to promise and are faced at the book's close by the question as to why this world that miss sidgwick has herself seen so vividly and given to us so bountifully a world full of pathos humour and excitement is ultimately for us so difficult of comprehension there is no doubt here of the fullness and vigour of miss sidgwick's imagination nor of the freedom and authority that she has given to it so that she has simply followed and written as it has commanded her but miss sidgwick's book is difficult to read because the author in the desire to give her imagination its finest freedom has refused when the career is run and the adventure is concluded any final and eliminating revision there the plunder that her excursion has provided for her is lying from this plunder there should be selection discipline order the story of the struggle the soul of a genius against physical weakness is fine crowd of persons protecting assaulting this genius is admirably described and illuminated only from the great mass of dialogue from the piling of minutiae upon minutiae from the constant iteration of the parisian and munich background enough does not finally reward the reader the boy his grandfather his uncle the composers the other musicians his philistine father are there and are truthfully there but their capture has been difficult and even when the tale is ended the mists are still about them mr beresford's goslings heinemann's six shillings on the other hand is almost too rigorously pruned and this only because the invention is so lively the characters so admirably vital that every reader will wish that the book had been twice as long here truly is imagination rightly disciplined mr beresford in his story of a plague that swept over europe and left for the most part only women behind it betrays all the philosophical acuteness and original invention that we should expect from the author of the hamdenshire wonder and also the colour and poetry that have been lacking in his earlier books his picture of a deserted london will call to mind mr wells war of the worlds but even here mr beresford has much that is his own that vast empty street with the mad queen of the earth shining with stolen jewels shouting as she goes for its only inhabitant will not easily be forgotten by mr beresford's readers but it is in his second part that his imagination is most surely and emphatically original his women old mrs gosling the two girls eileen elsie durham and the rest are so sharply defined and open up in their relations to one another so many novel and thrilling developments that the history of their adventures is all too short poor mrs gosling is most triumphantly distinguished against the bizarrery and fantastic colour of the background no doubt our heavenly father will make excuses is her wavering resort to some half-remembered security and against the garlanded debauchery of the butcher of high wycombe and the invasions of pan into a new relaxing civilization, such security was badly needed 
Gosling's is the most vital book that Mr. Beresford has given us. Here, then, is imagination, not, as with Mr. Locke, discarded, nor, as with Miss Sidgwick, undisciplined, but honestly developed and bravely restrained. End of Part 11